Klein and I jumped to our feet, startled by a sudden ringing sound, blaring like an alarm at full volume. Wah! What's that? We shouted simultaneously, then noticed each other's bodies, our eyes wide. Both Klein and I were enveloped in pillars of brilliant blue. Light. The scenery of the fields faded out behind the colored film. I'd experienced this phenomenon multiple times during the beta test. It was the teleport effect that took place when you used an item to travel instantaneously across the game. But I didn't have the right item, nor had I given the system any such command. If it was a system-side forced teleportation, why was it happening without any announcement? As my mind raced, the light surrounding me pulsed stronger, blocking my vision. The blue light faded, and the environment returned, but was no longer the evening field in which we had been standing. I was greeted by wide paving stones, trees lining the street, and a cleanly elegant medieval town. In the far distance, straight ahead, a massive palace gleamed darkly. I recognized it instantly as the central square of the town of Beginnings, the game's starting point. I turned to face Klein next. To me, his mouth agape. We stared out at the sea of humanity. Pressed in around us. It was a teeming mass of beautiful men and women, a clash of bristling equipment and hair in every color of the rainbow. These were all fellow SAO players. There had to be several thousand people here, nearly ten thousand, in fact. It seemed likely that every single player who was logged into the game had been forcibly teleported to this square. For a few seconds, there was a tense silence as everyone took in their surroundings. Mutters and murmurs broke out everywhere, steadily rising in volume. Shards of conversation could be made out above the din what's going on. Can we log out now? Hurry it up. The murmuring took on a distinct tone of anger and frustration, raised voices, demanding the GMs come out to explain themselves. Abruptly, someone screamed, cutting through the noise. Hey, look up. Klein and I instinctively raised our eyes, which were met with an unnatural sight. The bottom of the second floor hanging a hundred yards above us was bathed in a red checkerboard pattern. Looking closer, I could see that the pattern was made of two pieces of English text. I could make out warning and system announcement in the red font. After my fleeting initial shock, the tension in my shoulders redash. Laxed. Finally, the developers were going to give us an explanation. The roar in the square died down as the crowd strained its ears. But what happened next was nothing like what I expected. The center of the crimson pattern that covered the entire sky. Above suddenly sagged in the middle, pooling like an enormous drop of blood. The viscous drop slowly extended downward, but rather than breaking off and falling, it abruptly changed shape in midair. What emerged was the form of a giant person at least sixty feet tall, clad in a robe with a crimson hood. But this wasn't quite correct. We were staring up at it from the ground, at an angle that should have given us a glimpse underneath the hood, but there was no face. It was an empty space, the 
underside of the hood and the stitching of the seam clearly visibly. The long, dangling sleeves also contained nothing but a faint darkness. I recognized the shape of that robe. It was the signature outfit of official Argus GMs during the beta test. But at the time, the male GMs were depicted as elderly magicians with long white beards and female GMs were bespectacled young women. Perhaps some technical issue had prevented them from creating an avatar with the robe being the best that could be managed, but the sight of that empty void beneath the hood filled me with a wordless dread. The mass of players around me must have shared that apprehension. Mutters of confusion arose in waves. Is that a GM? Why doesn't he have a face? As if to quiet the murmuring, the right arm of the enormous robe suddenly shifted. A white glove peeked out of the pendulous sleeve, but once again, there was a stark separation between robe and glove with no flesh to be seen connecting them. Now the other sleeve rose in turn. The empty white gloves spread apart, looming over ten thousand heads, and the faceless being opened an invisible mouth, or so it seemed, from above. The crowd, a man's calm, deep voice, cut through the din welcome to my world, dear players. I didn't immediately register his meaning. My world? The red GM robe meant that he possessed the ability to manipulate the world as he saw fit. If he was already a god, why the need to announce it to everyone? As Klein and I stared at each other in disbelief, the robed figure lowered its arms and continued speaking. My name is Akihiko Kaiba. As of this moment, I am the only human being alive with control over this world. Wah! I was so shocked that not only did my avatar's breath catch in its throat, the same likely happened to my real body. Akihiko Kaiba. I knew that name. I couldn't not know it. He was the brilliant young game designer and quantum physicist who transformed niche game studio Argus into one of the foremost developers in the business. Not only was he the executive director of SAO, he also designed the basic foundation of the Nerve Gear unit itself. Like most other hardcore gamers, I held a deep reverence for Kayaba. I bought every magazine profile and reread his precious few interviews until I could practically quote them from memory. Just the brief sound of that voice conjured my mental image of Kayaba, looking smart in his ever-present white lab coat. But he'd always preferred to stay out of the spotlight, avoiding media attention wherever possible, and he'd certainly never stepped into an active GM role within a game like this, so why? Now? I stood stock still, urging my mind back into motion, trying to grasp the situation. But try as I might, the words that followed from the empty hood mocked my feeble attempts at comprehension. You have likely noticed by now that the logout button has disappeared from the main menu. This is not a bug. I repeat, this is not a bug, it is a feature of Sword Art Online. A feature. Klein muttered, his voice cracking. The smooth baritone continued, overlapping the end of his question. From this point onward, you will be unable to freely log out of the game until the summit of this castle is conquered. The word castle snagged on the inside of my brain. 
where was there a castle in the town of beginnings? But my momentary confusion was instantly wiped away by his next statement. Furthermore, the nerve gear cannot be removed or shut down via external means. If forceful means of exit are attempted. A pause. A palpably heavy silence filled the air, 10,000 breaths. Held in apprehension. The next words came with a slow, awful finality. The high-powered microwaves emitted by the nerve gear will scramble your brain and shut down your vital processes. Klein and I stared at each other for several seconds, our faces, blank masks. It was as though our brains themselves refused to process the words. But Kaiba's simple ultimatum shot through my body from head to toe with a palpable impact. Scramble our brains. In other words, it would kill us. Turning off the nerve gears. Power or attempting to remove it from the user's head would. Prove fatal, according to Kayaba. Murmurs rippled through the crowd, but no one screamed or. Raged. Everyone present, including me, either couldn't or. Wouldn't process the implications of his declaration. Klein's hand slowly rose to his head, attempting to grasp the. Nerve gear that existed only in the outside world. He let out a dry, quick laugh. Haha, what's he talking about? Is he crazy? That's not possibly. The nerve gear's just a game system. It can't possibly, like, destroy our brains or whatever. Right, Carido? He finished an A rasping shout. Despite his pleading glare, I couldn't bring myself to nod in agreement. The underside of the nerve gear helmet is embedded with Countless transmitters that emit faint electromagnetic waves, sending false sensations, directly to the brain cells. It's a piece of ultra-sophisticated, cutting-edge tech, but it also works on the same fundamental principles as a home appliance that has been around for decades, the kitchen microwave. With enough power, the nerve gear could potentially vibrate. The moisture in the brain cells, causing frictional heat strong. Enough to steam the brain from the inside out. But, in principle, it's not impossible, but he has to be bluffing. I mean, if you just pull the plug on the nerve gear, how can it produce enough juice to do that? Unless it's packing some massive batteries. Klein understood exactly why I trailed off. He moaned, a depraved expression, plastered across his face. But, it is. I heard. That a third of the unit's weight is battery cells. But still, this is. Ridiculous. What if there's a blackout? As though he heard Klein's roar, Kaiba continued his proclamation. To be more specific, the brain-frying sequence will commence. Upon any of the following circumstances, 10 minutes of no extra NAL power, 2 hours of network disconnection, removal, dismantling, or destruction of the nerve gear the authorities, and media in the outside world have already announced the details of these conditions to the general public. At present, the friends and family of several players have already ignored these warnings and attempted to forcefully remove their nerve gears, the result being the echoing, metallic voice paused for a breath. That sadly, 213 players have already 
been permanently retired from both Aincrad and the real world. A single shrill scream rang out from somewhere in the crowd. But the majority of players were stock still, either unable or refusing to believe, their faces displaying absent-minded smiles. Like them, my mind resisted Kaiba's words, but my body was. More honest, my legs beginning to quaver. I hobbled backward. Several steps on buckling knees, trying not to fall. Klein simply. Fell straight onto his rear, his face still empty. 213 players. The words reverberated over and over in my ears. Was Kaiba telling the truth? Were more than 200. People who had been playing this game just minutes ago already. Dead? Some of them must have been beta testers like me. Possibly. Even people whose faces or names I recognized from my time. Playing. And now Kayaba said their nerve gears had fried their brains and killed them? I won't believe it, I refuse to believe it, Klein muttered from. The paving stones, his voice hoarse. It's just a threat. He can't do. This. Quit dicking us around and let us out already. I've got better. Things to do than sit around while your little stunt plays out. That's all this is, right? A stunt. A bit of excitement to juice up the game's grand opening, yeah? The same thoughts had been racing through my mind at the exact same time. But Kaiba's dry, practical announcement continued, disregarding the wishes of his captive audience. There is no need to worry about your physical bodies back in the real world. The current state of the game and today's fatalities have been covered far and wide on television, radio, and the internet. The danger that someone will forcefully remove your nerve gear is already much diminished. The two-hour offline leeway period should provide enough time for your physical bodies to be transported to hospitals and other long-term care facilities. With proper security, eliminating concerns over your physical well-being, you may rest assured and focus on conquering the Game. Wah. A scream finally ripped out from my throat. What? Do you mean? Conquer the game? You expect us to just sit back. And enjoy the game when we can't even log out? I glared at the headless crimson robe, stretching up to nearly the upper floor and continued bellowing. This isn't even a game anymore. And again, as though he heard my voice, Akihiko Kayabas. Monotone continued. However, please proceed with caution. As of this moment, Sword Art Online is no longer a game to you. It is another reality. The standard means of player resurrection will no longer function. As they did previously. When your hit points dwindle to zero, your avatar will be permanently deleted. I knew what he was about to say before the words even came. And the nerve gear will destroy your brain. I felt an instant urge to burst into a high-pitched laughter, bub bling up from my gut and had to stifle the impulse. In the upper left-hand corner of my vision sat a thin bar, glowing blue. When I trained my eyes on the bar, the numbers 342-342 popped up next. To it, my hit points. My remaining life. If that number hit zero, I would actually die 
the game console would fry my brain with microwaves and kill me on the spot, according to Kayaba. Yes, this was a game. A game in which my life hung on the line. A game of death. During the two-month beta test, I must have died a hundred times. When that happened, you popped back to life with a cackle. In Black Iron Palace, to the north of the square, free to rush back. Out to the battlefield. That's how RPGs work. You die and die, learning lessons each. Time and honing your skills, but now we couldn't do that? Die. Once, and we were dead forever? Without even the option of quitting the game? This is ridiculous, I muttered. Who would possibly venture out into the dangers of the wilderness under those circumstances? Everyone was bound to stay within the safety of town. But as though anticipating the skepticism of all players pre-sent, Kayaba issued his next challenge. There is only one condition through which you can be freed. From this game. Simply reach the hundredth floor at the pinnacle of Aincrad and defeat the final boss who awaits you there. In that instant, all surviving players will be able to safely log out once. Again. A moment of sheer silence. I finally realized the meaning of his earlier phrase, conquer. The summit of this castle. He wasn't referring to just any castle, he was referring to Aincrad itself, the mammoth floating fortress. On whose very bottom floor we now stood, ninety-nine floors. Stacked above our heads. Clear the hundredth floor? Klein shouted abruptly. He clambered to his feet and shook his fist in the air. W. We can't possibly do that. I heard the entire group of beta testers barely got through the very start of the game. He was right. A thousand players took part in SAO's beta test, and when the two-month period was over, we'd only cleared the sixth floor. True, there were nearly ten times that number taking part in the game now, but how long would it take to reach a full hundred floors? My guess was that the entire square was wrestling with the same apprehension. The silent tension shifted into low rumblings. But I wasn't hearing sounds of fear or despair. Most likely, the majority of players here couldn't make up their minds. Whether this was true danger or simply a flashy opening ceremony held in poor taste. Kaiba's statements were so bizarre and dreadful to comprehend that the story lacked credibility. I tilted my head upward, glaring at the empty robe, desperately trying to adjust to this new reality. I couldn't log out. I couldn't get back to my real room, my real life. The only way that could happen was if someone reached the top of this castle and defeated the final boss. And if at any point my HP reached zero, I would die. Real death. I would cease to exist. But no matter how hard I tried to accept this information as truth, I simply couldn't. Just five or six hours ago, I'd eaten my mother's home-cooked lunch, spoken to my sister, and climbed the stairs to my room. And now I couldn't go back? Could this actually be happening? The red robe once again preempted the thoughts of all present, sweeping its white glove and continuing in a voice devoid of emotion. 
Finally, let me prove to you that this world is now your one. And only reality, I've prepared a gift for all of you. You may find it. In your item storage. Without thinking, I made the two-finger downward swipe to pull open the menu. Others around me made the same motion, the square filling with electronic chiming sounds. When I hit the inventory tab on the menu screen, I noticed something new at the top of the list. It was labeled hand mirror. Curious, I tapped the name and selected the materialize button from the list of options. With a sparkling sound effect, a small square mirror popped into being. I reluctantly picked up the mirror, but nothing happened. All I saw reflected in the surface was the painstakingly crafted face of my virtual avatar. Tilting my neck, I glanced at Klein. Like me, the chiseled samurai stood staring into his own mirror. Then, a brilliant white light enveloped Klein and several other char actors nearby. In the next instant, my vision went blank as the same light surrounded me. A few seconds later, it faded, return ing the same old sights. Except, this wasn't the Klein I recognized. The mismatched plate, armor, ugly bandana, and spiky red hair were the same as before. It was the face that had changed. The slender eyes were now bulging and round. The slender bridge of his nose was a beak. And his fine cheeks and chin were now covered in scraggly facial hair. If his former avatar was a gallant young samurai, the new Klein was a wandering ronin, or worse yet, a bandit. Forgetting everything for an instant, I muttered, Who are you? The man before me returned the question. Me? Who are you? And in a flash of enlightenment, I understood the meaning of Kaiba's gift. Raising my own mirror again, I stared at the reflection within. Black hair in an inoffensive style. Gentle eyes set beneath long. Bangs. A soft, rounded face that still got me confused for a sister. Instead of a brother, when strangers saw me side by side with my sister. There was none of Carito's previous heroic look. The face I saw. In the mirror, was the real-life face I'd been trying to escape. Whoa, it's me, Klein murmured into his mirror, flabbergasted. We faced each other again and shouted in unison. You're Klein? You're Carito? The voice filtering function had apparently stopped working, shifting the sound of our voices as well, but that was the least of our concerns. Both mirrors slipped through our fingers, hitting the ground. Simultaneously with a faint crack. A quick glance around showed that the prior gathering of wildly colored, beautiful fantasy char actors had changed dramatically. It was as though someone had taken the crowd of a real video game convention and given them swords and armor to wear. Even the ratio of men to women had gone frightfully askance. How was this possible? We had all gone from our virtual avatars to our real-life appearances. It was still presented in polygonal form with a few slight details felt out, but the degree of accuracy was startling. It was like I'd undergone a full-body scan. A scan. Of course. I muttered, looking up at Klein. 
The Nerve G ears got those transmitters all over the underside of the helmet, including the part that covers your face. So not only can it read your brain, it also recreates your facial details. But what about my height and my weight? Klein peered around, his voice uncharacteristically quiet. The crowd of players, still staring about in amazement, had clearly lost a few inches in average height after the adjustment. Both Klein and I had set our avatar's heights to be about the same as our own, hoping to avoid throwing off our physical coordina tie-in during full dive due to any changes in eye level. But judging from the crowd, the majority of players had given themselves an extra six inches, if not more. And that wasn't all. The average girth of the crowd had swollen considerably as well. But the nerve gear could only scan our heads. How could it have gauged our body size? Klein had the answer. Wait a sec. I remember this, cause I just bought my nerve gear. Yesterday. It did that thing during the setup phase, what was it, calibration? It asked me to touch my body in all these different spots. Could that have been it? Oh, right, of course. The calibration process was a measurement of how far the user needed to move to touch his or her body, such that the system could recreate the proper surface area digitally. In essence, it was enlisting the user's help to build an internal measurement of the user's body. It clearly worked. Every player in the world of SAO at this MO- meant had been turned into a virtually perfect polygonal replica of themselves. The intent was obvious. It's reality, I muttered. He just said so. My avatar and my hit points are now my real body and life. Kaiba recreated our faces and figures to force us to recognize the truth. Bebut, Carido, Klein wailed, scratching his head as his eyes bulged beneath the bandana. Why? Why would he do something like this? I couldn't answer that. Instead, I pointed upward. Just wait. He's about to answer that, I'm sure. Kaiba did not disappoint. The solemn voice continued a few seconds later, ringing out from the blood-red sky. You are likely asking yourselves, why? Why would Akihiko, Kaiba, developer of SAO and the Nerve Gear Unit, do such a thing? Is it an act of terrorism? An elaborate kidnapping to extract ransom money? And for the first time, Kaiba's emotionless voice began to take on the faintest signs of color. Despite the situation, I felt a hint of longing in his voice. But that couldn't be right. What I seek is neither of these things. I have no goals or justifications at this moment. In fact, this very situation was my ultimate goal. I created the Nerve Gear and SAO precisely in order to build this world and observe it. I have now achieved that aim. After a short pause, Kaiba's voice was back to its usual MO not one. This concludes the tutorial phase of Sword Art Online. I wish you the best of luck, dear players. His last word echoed briefly before dying out. The crimson robe silently ascended, the tip of the hood melt ing into the system warning still displayed in midair. 
The shoulders, chest, arms, and legs followed into the blood-red surface, leaving a single outward ripple behind. The next instant, the giant wall of messages plastered across the sky disappeared as abruptly as it came. The wind blew over the top of the square, and the BGM from a band of NPC musicians slowly approached from afar, bringing life back to my ears. The game had returned to its original state. The only difference lay in a few very crucial rules. Finally, at long last, the throng of players exhibited the proper reaction. The square exploded into noise, convulsing with the sound of 10,000 voices all at once. This can't be happening, you've gotta be kidding me. Screw this. Let me out. I want out of here. You can't do this to me. I'm supposed to meet someone. Tonight. No. Let me leave, let me leave. Screams. Rage. Shrieks. Insults. Pleading. And roars. In the span of several minutes, we'd been turned from players. To prisoners. We held our heads, sunk to our knees, shook fists in. The air, grabbed others, and turned on one another. Oddly enough, the more the screaming continued, the clearer. My thoughts became. This is reality. Everything that Akihiko Kayaba said was the. Truth. He, of all people, would be capable of this. That destructive, unpredictable genius was part of his allure. I would not be back in the real world for quite some time. Months, if not longer. I wouldn't be able to see or speak to my mother or sister. I might never do so again. If I died here, I was really dead. The nerve gear, game console, shackles, and guillotine blade. All in one, would fry my brain and kill me. I took a slow, measured breath and opened my mouth. Come with me, Klein. I grabbed his arm, his figure still imposingly tall even after the shift to our actual body types, and quickly led him out through the hysterical mob. We must have been placed near the outside of the group, as it took little time to escape the crowd. I marched down one of the town streets radiating out from the square and stepped behind a stationary carriage. Klein, I snapped at the dazed man in the most sober tone I could manage. Listen up. I'm leaving this city right now, and heading for the next village. Come with me. I pushed on, my voice low, as Klein stared at me from beneath. His hideous bandana. If what he said is true, then we have to get stronger, and stronger in order to survive. I'm sure you already know that. MMORPGs are battle over system resources. There's only so much gold, loot, and experience to go around, so the more you win, the stronger you get. Everyone's going to have the same idea, so the fields around the town of beginnings will be bled dry in no time. You'll be forced to wander around, endlessly waiting for mobs to repop. We need to take this opportunity to set up base in the next town. I know the way, and I know which spots are dangerous. I can get us there safely, even at level 1. By my standards, it was a marathon speech, but Klein listened. To every word. 
A few seconds later, he grimaced slightly. But, remember what I said earlier? I stayed in line all night. With some friends from another game, just to buy this. They were. Logged in. They must still be back in the square. I can't just leave. Them behind. I held my breath and bit my lip. The intention behind Klein's. Pensive stare was as plain as day. The jovial, faithful man couldn't. Leave his friends behind. He wanted to bring them with us. And I just couldn't agree to that. Even at level one, I was confident that I could protect Klein. Alone from the more aggressive monsters along the route to the next village. But any more than that would make the risks too. Great. What if someone died en route and, as Kayaba said, had his actual brain fried? The responsibility would lie with me, the guy who wanted to leave our initial haven and failed to keep everyone safe. I couldn't handle that unbearable pressure. It was impossible. Klein seemed to pick up on my momentary hesitation once. Again, a stiff but broad smile cracked his stubbly cheeks, and he shook his head slowly. Nah, I can't ask for more of your help than you've already given. Hell, I was a guild leader myself back in the last game. Don't worry, I'll get by with the techniques you taught me. Besides, there's always the possibility that this really was just a bad prank, and we'll be able to log out in no time. So go on, jump, ahead and don't mind me. For a few seconds, I stayed silent, grappling with a conflict, the likes of which I'd never faced before. And then I spoke the simple words that I would grow to regret. Over the following two years. Okay. I nodded, taking a step back. In a hoarse voice, I continued. We'll part ways here, then. Shoot me a message if anything comes up. Well, see ya, Klein. As I averted my eyes and tried to turn away, Klein barked out. Carito. His glance said he wanted to ask something, but his cheekbones only twitched, and no words came out. I waved and turned. Northwest, the general direction of the village I sought to go next. After five steps, I heard his voice call out behind me again. Hey, Carito. Turns out you look pretty cute after all. Just my type. I grimaced and called back over my shoulder. And you look ten times better now that you're a mountain bandit. And having turned my back on the first friend I ever made in this world, I started walking forward. After a few minutes, travel ing down the twisted back alleys of the city, I turned around to look. There was no one there, of course. Gritting my teeth and swallowing the strange sensation that seemed to block my windpipe, I picked up my heels and ran. First the northwest gate of the town of beginnings, then a vast field and deep forest, and finally a little village. I raced onward toward what lay beyond, headlong into a lonely battle for survival. Without end. 4. 2,000 players were dead within a month. In that time, we never received a single message from outside, much less any kind of resolution to our crisis. I didn't stick around to see it for myself, but tales of the panic. That erupted when it finally sank in that there was no escape told. 
of sheer madness and chaos. The crowd wailed, cried, and raged. Some even claimed they would destroy the game world, making futile attempts to dig up the cobblestones of the city square. Needless to say, the structures were permanent, immovable. Pieces of the game environment, and the demolition didn't last. Long. It took several days for full acceptance of the status quo to sink in and new plans to emerge. The players split up into four rough categories, first and largest of those groups, at nearly half the games. Population, were those who chose not to believe Akihiko Kayabas. Conditions for release and simply waited for help. Their reasons were painfully understandable. Our bodies were sitting on chairs. Or beds in real life, living and breathing. Those were our real selves, and what happened here was just temporary. One simple little change of circumstances and we could go back. Not through the logout button in the menu, perhaps, but surely there was something if we just figured out what it was. The other source of hope was that the game's developer, Argus, to say nothing of the government itself, was most certainly Mac ING every effort possible to rescue us. If we were simply calm and patient, we would eventually wake up in our beds, surrounded by our loving families. We might even be temporary celebrities at school or work. It was hard not to fall into this line of thinking. Part of me was hoping for the same thing. This group of players chose to wait. They stayed within the first city, using their initial allotment of money, measured in a currency known as call, bit by bit to buy food and cheap lodgings, grouping together in loose cliques. Fortunately, the town of Beginnings took up nearly a fifth of the first floor, as large as one of the smaller wards of Tokyo. This meant there was more than enough capacity for 5,000 players to settle in without feeling cramped. But as time dragged on, there was no sign of help. Every whack ing moment brought the same scenery outside the window, not a blue sky, but the gloomy cover of rock and metal looming overhead like a giant lid. Their initial allotment of money wouldn't last forever, and the waiters would eventually have to do something. The second group made up about 30%. These three thou sand players decided that cooperation was the best chance of survival. The leader of the group was the manager of one of Japan's biggest websites about online gaming. Under his supervision, players were grouped together into smaller bands, sharing items and call and trading information about the labyrinths that housed the staircases to the next floor. The leader's group claimed Black Iron Palace, the castle that loomed over the central square of the town of Beginnings, from which they sent instructions to smaller parties and accumulated supplies. This massive gathering was without a proper title for some time, but once they all started wearing the same uniform, the army label stopped being just a cute nickname. The third category, of which there were about a thousand people, were the ones who wasted their call early, didn't feel like braving the monsters in the wilderness, and began to get desperate. Incidentally, even in the virtual world of SAO, there are inescapable natural urges, hunger and sleep. It made sense that you needed to sleep, regardless of whether the stimuli received 
are real or virtual, the brain needs to turn off and recharge at some point. When players get tired, they find inns, rent rooms that suit their pocketbooks and sink into their beds. With enough call, it's possible to buy a residence in the town of your choice, but it's a monumental task. The hunger was more of a mystery. Though we don't like to imagine it, presumably our real bodies are being kept alive through some means of force feeding. Eating food in SAO doesn't actually fill our bellies in real life. Yet stuffing virtual bread or meat into your face will get rid of the hunger and make you feel sated. You'll have to ask a neurologist to explain how that works. On the other hand, once you start feeling hungry, it'll never go away until you eat. I don't think fasting could actually end in starvation, but it's still a natural urge that is incredibly hard to resist. So every day, players rush into pubs and restaurants run by NPCs, stuffing their bellies with food made of pure data. And that's where the digestive process ends, by the way. No use dwelling on the less pleasant aspects. But enough about that. Most of the players who'd wasted their initial earnings and started going hungry wound up with no other choice but to join the army. After all, orders were easy to follow if they were the only way you got fed at the end of the day. But even in virtual worlds, there are those to whom Cooperatian is anathema. The ones who resisted joining any groups or got kicked out for causing trouble wound up inhabiting the slums of the town of beginnings, living a life of crime. Town interiors were a protected zone where the system prevented players from harming each other, but there were no rules. Outside of town, vagabonds teamed up with their own kind, avoiding monsters for the easier and more rewarding prey of unsuspecting adventurers. At least they didn't stoop to killing, for the first year. This group of players grew over time until it reached my estimated count of around a thousand. The fourth and final category might as well be titled Miscellaneous. Around 500 players who wanted to help conquer the game, but didn't want to join the army, formed roughly 50 smaller groups known as guilds. They were a positive force in our advancement through the game, using their limited resources more nimbly than the army's massive bureaucracy could manage. There was also the extreme minority of crafters and traders. These two to three hundred players formed guilds of their own, focusing on the skills that would enable them to raise call and make a living without fighting. The remaining several dozen adventurers, myself included, were the solo players. We were the individualists who chose to act. Alone rather than join any group, either out of self-interest or because we felt it was the most effective means of survival. Most of the solos were former beta testers. We'd called upon our prior experiences to fly out of the gate at the game's start, but once we were powerful enough to handle monsters and robbers on our own, we found little reason to work with others. On top of that, SAO was a game without magic, i.e., easy long-range attacks, which meant that enemies were fairly easy to manage single-handedly, even when they came in groups. With proper skill, a good solo player could earn experience much faster than he could with a group. 
not that this was without risks. For example, contracting. Paralysis while in a party just meant that someone else had to heal you. On your own, it could be a death sentence. The fatality rate among solo players was easily the highest of any category, but with enough knowledge and experience to properly avoid danger, the returns easily outweighed the risks. And we beta. Testers had an advantage over the others in those categories. As the solos used their knowledge to far outpace the new players, S.E. Rias friction developed between the two groups, and when the initial chaos eventually settled, the solo players all left the first floor to settle in towns higher up. Within Black Iron Palace was a room formerly known as the Chamber of Resurrection. Since the beta test, a massive metallic epitaph had appeared there, etched with the names of all ten thousand players. It had been thoughtfully designed such that when a player died, his or her name was very clearly crossed out, with the time and cause of death printed next to it. It only took three hours for someone to earn the honor of being the first. The cause of death was not monsters, but suicide. The unfortunate victim claimed that due to the structure of the nerve gear, if we simply removed ourselves from the game system, we would automatically leave the program and regain consciousness on the other side. He climbed over the tall railing of the terrace on the south edge of town, the very outer border of Ankrat itself, and threw himself overboard. No matter how hard you peered down, there was never the slightest hint of land or any other surface beneath Ankrad. Not ing, but endless sky and layer upon layer of clouds. With the Crowd at the terrace watching, the man's scream grew steadily, fainter as he plummeted, until he finally disappeared through the cloud layer. Two minutes later, his name was unceremoniously, Merci Leslie crossed out on the monument. His cause of death fell from a great height. I don't want to think about what he experienced. On that fall, whether he reawoke in the real world or got brain fried, as Kayaba claimed, was impossible to determine from within the game. But most players agreed that if it were that easy to escape, we'd all have been detached from the outside and residential queued by now. Still, there were others here and there who also succumbed to the temptation of such a simple conclusion. It was extremely difficult to fully appreciate the concept of death within SAO. That still hasn't changed. The visual effect of polygons break ING apart when HP reaches zero is just too close to the game over. Screen, a harmless phenomenon familiar to all gamers. The only way to fully understand death in SAO is to experience it for oneself. I have no doubt that the mental distance from our supposed mortality was a major contributing factor to the decline in Popolation, when the army, the other minor guilds, and the wait and see. Types clogging the town of beginnings finally started tackling the game itself, we started losing people to the monsters. Experience and instincts are necessary to win battles in SAO. The trick is to not try doing everything on your own, you have to ride the system's automatic support. Take a simple, single-handed uppercut slice. If you've learned the one-handed sword category and upward slice is equipped. 
In your list of sword skills, all you need to do is perform the proper motion, and the system will move your body automatically. If you don't have the skill equipped and try to mimic the movements on your own, the result will be so much slower and weaker that there's no point even trying it. In essence, the knack to combat an SAO was a bit like pulling off combos in a fighting game. Those who couldn't get the grasp of the system just swung their swords back and forth lamely, scuffling against even the weakest boars and wolves, enemies that were easily defeated with the most basic of initial skills. And even if your health was dwindling and the fight was proving difficult, there was always the optine of disengaging and retreating to avoid death. Except that unlike fighting 2D monsters on a simple TV screen, the incredible realism of SAO's world brought forth a kind of primal fear in its players. In every encounter, you were faced with actual monsters bearing wicked fangs, ready to charge and kill. Plenty of beta testers felt an initial panic when they first experienced the combat of SAO, but that was nothing compared to fighting with the specter of actual death overhead. When the grips of fear took over, players forgot even the most basic of skills or dodges, becoming helpless targets as their hit points were torn from them. Suicide. Defeat in combat. The lines on the epitaph pro-lifer aided, unstoppable and uncaring. When the number of dead topped 2,000 in just the first month, the remaining population was plunged into black despair. If that mortality rate continued, we'd all have been dead. Within half a year, clearing all hundred floors was just a pipe. Dream. The thing about human beings is, we learn. After just over a month, we had finally conquered the first floor of Aincrad. It took only 10 days for the second to fall, and by then the death rate was plummeting. A survival tip spread. Throughout the population, people began to realize that as long as they earned experience and gained levels, the monsters weren't so frightening after all. Maybe we can beat this game. Maybe we can get back to the real world. Confidence and optimism dared to peek their heads. Out once again, the top floor of Aincrad was impossibly far away, but that hope was enough to jumpstart us into motion. The world began ticking away again. It's been two years. There are 26 floors left to conquer. And 6,000 survivors. Such is the present state of Aincrad. 5. My battle with the powerful lizard man lord in the 74th floor labyrinth concluded, I traveled the route back, tracing distant memories in my head. At long last, the light of the exit came into sight, and I heaved a sigh of relief. I cast aside the stuffy memories and rushed out of the corridor, breathing the fresh, crisp air deeply. Before me was a dark forest path, the sides overgrown. Behind me loomed the Labyrinth, its mammoth spire, stretching upward in the evening. Light to the bottom of the floor above. Given that the objective of the game was to reach the top of the castle, the dungeons of this game took the FORM of massive towers. Rather than underground catacombs or caves, they still held fast. To the basic tenets of a dungeon, though, more dangerous foes than you found elsewhere.
winding corridors, and a terrible boss. At the very end, the 74th floor labyrinth was 80% mapped out. At this point, within a few days, we'd find the boss's lair, and a raiding party would be arranged. Even as a solo, I'd play a part in the battle. Grimacing at my equal measures of anticipation and anxiety, I walked out of the doorway. My current home is in Elgate on the 50th floor, the de facto largest city in Aincrad. In terms of scale, the town of beginnings is bigger, but given that the army controlled it entirely now, it was best to give that place a wide berth. As I passed through the field, darkening with the onset of evening, I came to a forest of gnarled, ancient oaks. A 30-minute walk would bring me to the residential area of the 74th floor, from which I could use the teleport gate to reach Algate instantly. I could have used a teleportation item to return to Algate from any point in Aincrad, but they were pricey and best saved for emergencies. There was still time left before the light was fully gone, so I plunged into the forest, resisting the temptation to teleport and plop onto my bed immediately. Outside of a few load-bearing structures, the outer edge of each floor of Aincrad was essentially open to the sky. The sunlight tilting through the distant opening set the trees aflame with a reddish glow. Thick mist flowing through the branches glinted eerily as it reflected the dying light. The raucous daytime bird calls grew sparse, and the rustling of the breeze through the branches seemed to echo louder than before. Despite knowing that I could handle the monsters in this area, while half asleep, it was hard to repress an instinctual fear of this. Hour of darkening. It resembled the sensation of being lost on the way home at a young age, frozen with anxiety. I didn't dislike the feeling, however. I'd forgotten this kind of primal emotion back in the real world. And after all, wasn't a solitary march across the wilderness without a soul in sight one of the great pleasures of an RPG? A faint, unfamiliar cry broke me out of my nostalgic reverie. It was a single high note, brief and clear, like a leaf whistle. I stopped in my tracks, trying to discern the direction of the call. Unfamiliar sights and sounds in this world meant the advent of fortune, good or bad. As a solo player, I'd put lots of work into my search skill. It was designed to help you protect against ambushes, and as it rose in level, it enabled you to spot foes and players hidden in stealth mode. Pretty soon, the form of a monster came into view in the shadows of a large tree, about ten yards away. It wasn't very big. I could see gray-green fur suited to blending in with leaves and elongated ears longer than the animal's body. By focusing my vision, I prompted the game to automatically target the monster for me, bringing up a yellow cursor and the target's name. When I saw the words that appeared, I held my breath. It was a ragu rabbit, an ultra-rare creature. It was certainly the first I'd ever seen. The fluffy little things lived in trees, weren't particularly strong, nor rewarding in terms of experience points. There. Value came from something else. Silently, I slipped an arrow throwing pick out of my belt. My. 
throwing knife skill was only active in a skill slot to round out the bunch, and my proficiency was modest. But I'd heard that the Ragu Rabbit had the highest escape speed of any monster yet. Discovered, so I didn't think I could actually get close enough to use my normal sword. At least I had the opportunity for a first strike, given that the rabbit hadn't noticed me yet. The pick in my right hand, I said a silent prayer and queued up the motion for the basic throwing. Knife skill, single shot. My proficiency in throwing knives might have been weak, but the skill's chances were adjusted based on my agility stat, which was through the roof. The pick flashed like lightning in my hand and shot into the shadows of the branches, leaving a momentary trail of light behind it. The instant I initiated the skill, the target ING cursor went from yellow to hostile red, bringing up the rab bit's HP bar below. As I watched the trail of the pick, I heard an even higher pitched scream, and the HP bar immediately dropped to zero.